Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That with episode 323 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened this past week in NXT and AEW. NXT presented its Great American Bash special show coming out of the 4th of July. AEW starting to build, really, for All Out, its next upcoming pay-per-view, and a lone, unbranded episode in the middle of Road Rager, Blood and Guts, and apparently Fighter Fest starting next week. So a regular episode of Dynamite uh, this week for us to break down, along with an eventful and newsworthy episode of Rampage from last Friday. So as you can tell, we have plenty to discuss on today's show, but I cannot start an episode of Getting Over without reminding you that this podcast is So be sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Hit us up with a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a written review. Those reviews are so important for us. They tell people why you listen, why you subscribe, and it gives them incentive to do the same. And as I've always said, or not always said, but as I've said the last six months or so, we will read every five-star review live on this show. So go ahead, leave that five-star review. If you left a rating with no review in the past, go back, amend it, add a review as well. It'll pop up to the forefront and we will read it right here on the show. I appreciate everyone that takes the time to rate us and review us. It is super, super important and very helpful as well. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. It's a great place for all of us to interact. We frequently read your questions and comments uh, from the DMs and tweets here on the show during our podcast. And of course, you also have the opportunity to participate in polls ahead of and after pay-per-views and premium live events, live shows on Twitter spaces, etc., etc. Follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Now, we do have a lot to discuss today, as I've already mentioned, through NXT and AEW. And I don't want to waste too much time other than to say at the start of the show, if you are looking for an episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, where the Silver King is critical, you found it. Because NXT and AEW this week both left a lot to be desired. And this is coming off a period of time where I thought NXT had been operating pretty damn well with some interesting shows. The taped episodes were way better than I expected. And AEW had some really damn good television uh, leading into Double or Nothing. But it really kind of fell off ahead of Forbidden Door with the exception of the Go Home Show. And since Forbidden Door, it's kind of been not great either. In fact, you can make a case that this week's episode of Dynamite was one of the worst of the year. And some may disagree with that, but I'm going to explain to you why as we go forward in the show. One more reminder, we do provide timestamps for every episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. So if you are listening to this episode and you only want to hear about what's happening in NXT or only AEW, you can check our episode description, you can find those timestamps, and you can skip ahead. But I always hope that everyone listening to this episode goes through the entire thing and hears what's going on across both brands. So with that, let's just get right into it. And because it was a special episode, we are going to start this week with NXT analysis, reviews, and grades for 
NXT, the Great American Bash. And we, of course, will then go to AEW in the second part of the show. So NXT opened their episode this week with a 4th of July barbecue, or I guess a Great American Bash barbecue, hosted by Briggs and Jensen, the new NXT UK champions. Sangha did a cannonball into Duke Hudson that was in the pool. They had a splash fight. I kind of assumed that was going to lead to a match on the card, but it didn't. Everyone else just kind of previewed the matches that were to come. There's nothing else really to say. Pretty Deadly later had a short video package making fun of Briggs and Jensen for being Hicks and saying that they would take the NXT UK titles back. So that's a match that will happen in the future. Let's move right to the main event. The NXT championship was on the line. Braun Breaker against Cameron Grimes. Grimes asked Breaker backstage about his shoulder, then told him he would do whatever it takes to leave with the championship. Breaker was still tender later when he was in the training room. He also refused to get tape on his shoulder. Braun came out in an American flag singlet reminiscent of what his father and uncle have worn previously. Uh, The match story was basically that Breaker is too injured to hit many of his signature moves. He did get a nice spine buster and some left shoulder tackles while selling the right side of his body. Grimes finally hit a Spanish crossbody for a really nice near fall. It looked awesome for him to be able to execute that with a guy of Braun's size. Really, for Braun to be able to execute that is what was impressive, but it looked really cool. Uh, Braun hit a Frankensteiner for a near fall. Grimes tried a tarantula kind of submission, but Breaker easily powered out of it. Grimes threw Braun injured shoulder first into the turnbuckle and came back with a cave-in, but he only got a 2.5 on the false finish. The kickout should have been way closer to three. It was not executed well. Grimes then jumped off the top rope, seemingly for no reason, uh, as Braun was standing in the middle of the ring and Breaker just caught him with a midair spear for the win to retain the title in 11 minutes. The match was really well wrestled up until that final 30 seconds. The too soon kick out didn't sell the false finish and Grimes following it up by just jumping vertically off the top rope into thin air without any move that was obvious that he was trying to do. It just was nonsensical. You know, it doesn't look impressive when there's not a purpose to it. If you have someone who's going to try and deliver a finisher, let's say Carmelo Hayes, who does the avalanche leg drop, and then Braun is able to take him out of that, it makes sense, but Grimes already hit his finisher. If anything, maybe he should have been setting him up onto the ropes to hit a second cave-in where Braun flies off, Grimes tries to do something else, and then Braun spears him and gets the win. It was just, it felt rushed. It just didn't work for me. Uh, Look, Braun was really hot coming out of the blocks. His momentum has stalled massively. We've talked about it before. It's mostly because of that Joe Gacy feud, which was awful and went on way too long. But something now is not clicking for me with Breaker the way it used to be. It's time to take the title off of him. He's held it for five of the first six months of 2022. And the main event division in NXT right now badly needs to be refreshed as does the women's main event division, like we've talked about. Mandy and Braun have been champions seemingly the entire year, and it's just straight up boring at this point. It's the same thing every week. As a certain tribal chief might say, it's kind of like missionary position. It's the same thing over and over and over. It's like missionary position every single night. And like the tribal chief... You know, he's better than that. And I think we're better than that as viewers. If the execution of the finish was better, I'd give it a higher grade. But 3.5 stars in a B, I still think it's pretty generous. And it was a very entertaining match up until that. Now, in the show, earlier in the show, JD McDonough announced 
in a vignette that NXT 2.0 will change forever when he debuts next week. As Breaker was walking back to the gorilla, basically, with his title, the former Jordan Devlin attacked him from behind and hit what used to be called the Devlin Slide, it's a whip Saito suplex, into a table at the entrance. McDonough then yelled that Braun's the one he's been calling out in those backstage vignettes. It was a hot way to end the show and set up a new challenger, but Braun basically jumped into his arms and the impact through the table that was set up, you know, 4th of July style with red, white, and blue tablecloth and stuff on it, it just didn't really feel as impactful as it probably should have been. So they're going to be debuting McDonough and I have to assume he's just going to lose to Braun, which is not ideal. It's really tough to believe that they're going to bring someone in from NXT UK who's super talented and just feed them to the main champion. I'm still excited to see Devlin over in the United States full-time. He probably, though, should have been someone to jump into the North American title picture, maybe even as a babyface, and possibly the one to take the title off Carmelo Hayes if you're not going to have Solo Sokoa be that person. Instead, he's in the main event. So it's interesting that they did this, and we're going to see exactly what develops here, but I'm not liking it initially. Wesley fought Trick Williams in an undercard match, and I'm talking about it early because it impacts something later in the show. Trick entered in Muhammad Ali-inspired boxing gear. He actually looked pretty great. Mello played the corner man with two water bottles. Mello refused to let Trick drink from one of the bottles at some point during the match. And then later, Wesley and Mello got into it at ringside. Trick ran out and slicked his hands with the liquid that was in the second bottle. Then he rubbed Wesley in the face to blind him. He had a roundhouse kick and he got the win in four minutes. Uh, Commentary immediately called it out because they could smell it as rubbing alcohol. And I appreciated that. They didn't wait or try to figure out what was going on or have Wesley complain about it. They just straight up, Vic Joseph was like, look, smells like rubbing alcohol. That's going to blind him. That's why that happened. Now on a regular TV show, I would have no problem with this. But for a special event, it was really cheap to end a match this way and have it only go four minutes. We barely got to see these guys wrestle especially coming off what I thought was a very rough women's tag team championship match that we'll talk about in a little bit. Wesley could definitely become a challenger for Melo down the line if this plays out, though it really did seem like Solo Sokoa was primed for that role, but this was too short for me to grade. It was just an incomplete, basically. So we had the North American championship match, Carmelo Hayes against Grayson Waller. Backstage, Waller talked shit about winning the title. Melo said Waller is common, but he's special. Trick then appeared on the crow's nest to introduce Mello, who made a spectacular entrance. Maybe the best NXT 2.0 entrance that we've seen so far. 1996 Dream Team style. He looked incredible with fresh gear, new graphics. He also had Allen Iverson elements to some of his gear and his look once again. And yeah, it's trite to say it. Mello looked like a total baller. Uh, Hayes hit his fadeaway springboard leg drop for a near fall. Waller came back with a sliding clothesline out of the ring and then his stupid springboard through the legs elbow drop for another near fall. Waller hit a flip over, I think it was a kill switch. It was awesome. It looked super cool. Then he countered a tornado DDT attempt with a jump up stunner, but Mello rolled outside and Waller was not able to make the cover. Both of those spots were pretty wild. Trick stopped Waller from hitting his rolling cutter. So Wesley ran in to take Trick out. Waller then went for the move but Hayes countered it into a code breaker and hit the flying leg drop for the win in 13 minutes. This was easily, without question, the match of the night and a really smart finish that gave Waller an excuse for the loss while simultaneously connecting the two storylines on the show. 
Despite Waller, he would have been a great choice for North American champion one day. This was not the time to give him the title, not with another heel in Mello as the champion. So I went four stars and an A minus for this match. It was the best thing on the show, top to bottom, as I said. And I didn't really consider this, obviously, because it happened afterward, but it was the best midweek match for me as well. I thought it was better than any individual match we had on Dynamite. So this, for me, was the match of the midweek, I guess is the best way to put it. And I maintain, though, one other thing, that Mello badly needs to change his finisher. First of all, he's capable of so much better and so many more impressive feats athletically than doing an avalanche leg drop. But beyond that, the flying leg drop is a straight-up career shortener. It is not good. It hurts the tailbone. It hurts the spine. It is not something you can do for 10, 15 years. There's no two ways about it. He has to come up with something better than that. If you want that to be a special finisher or a special extra setup move for a finisher, rarely, occasionally, that's okay. But it should not be what he uses in every match. And it basically is. It's not a good idea for his health. And it doesn't look as spectacular as the myriad other things that this guy can do. And they need to pick one of them and just go with it. We had a women's tag team championship match, Toxic Attraction against Roxanne Perez and Cora Jade. Now this opened the show. The challengers did a Russian leg sweep missile dropkick combo that was half missed. Mandy Rose interfered with a fall and got ejected. Perez ate a code breaker and a lariat for a broken fall at one. Then Jade jumped in to prevent Toxic from hitting their finisher as Roxanne hit Gigi Dolan with Pop Rocks for the win in 11 minutes. This match didn't exactly have what I would call botches, other than that one missed move that I mentioned earlier. But the whole thing was extremely slow without a single sequence that I would call impressive. In other words, the entire thing was lackluster. For a title change, after all of this time with Toxic having these belts, it completely underdelivered. The match was maybe 2.5 stars C. It was just an average ho-hum match on this card. And on top of that, I maintain that the booking did not make a shred of sense. Roxy just won the breakout tournament contract for a singles title match. And immediately, they have her win the women's tag team titles. When there are other tag teams on the show, most notably the KCs, Casey, uh, I almost called her Casey Catanzaro, Katana Chance, and Caden Carter, who have been ready-made to be the team to beat Toxic and just for some reason have not been booked to do it. So Roxy, she wins the breakout tournament contract. She has a singles title match that she can cash in any time, but instead they have her win the tag team titles. So now we know that she's going to lose this singles title match if and when she challenges the champion or she won't use it for a however long period of time. Beyond all of that, as I just said, Roxy and Jade were probably the wrong team to put the titles on in the first place. Again, lackluster match, lackluster moment, lackluster booking. To wait that long for Toxic to drop the titles and for this to be what we got, it just wasn't good. It didn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make sense to anybody because nobody says that. No, I don't understand because nobody understands. Now, backstage after the match, Perez and Jade were celebrating, you know, obviously winning the titles and knocking Toxic Attraction off their pedestal. Roxanne then announced that she's going to cash in her contract next week to beat Mandy Rose 
and take Toxic out for good. So there you go. Roxanne won the tag team titles and her breakout tournament contract is now gonna be completely worthless. Mandy later said Roxanne is running on her high horse, but they've already both, Roxanne and Jade, tried and failed to beat her one-on-one. Thence, she suggested Perez may not even make it to the match healthy. Now, I suppose they technically could have Roxanne Perez beat Mandy Rose and take the NXT women's title, but it's just not gonna happen. Even if Toxic was getting called up, they would do the change in a few weeks, not this coming week. The correct booking would have been this. You have Gigi Dolan and JC Jane cost Roxanne a title match against Mandy after she cashes in the contract. Then, because Roxanne is angry about it and got screwed, she and Cora Jade challenge both of them and win the tag team titles off of Toxic Attraction. Instead, they booked it completely backwards. And if the idea is that she won the tag team titles and is now overconfident, then all they're doing is booking her as a dumb young babyface, which really is not any better. So for me, this I, I love Roxanne Perez. I think she's a super talent who has a chance to be a main eventer on the main roster. But the way this has been booked, I'm sorry, I cannot praise it. We had a tag team championship match, the Creed Brothers against Roderick Strong and Damon Kemp. Ivy Nile backstage was explaining how the match would not be the end of Diamond Mine. Tatum Paxley was overheard arguing with the KCs. Ivy interrupted to separate them and then demanded Paxley get in the dojo to train early. So apparently they're becoming a tag team. Diamond Mine then got pumped up for their match together with Strong leaving as soon as they finished while the others took their time and were kind of weirded out by the way he departed. So in the match, the Creeds dominated early with Brutus doing a cannonball outside. I really don't like the move. I mean, it looks freaking awesome, but this guy is either going to get hurt himself or he's going to get hurt. He's going to hurt someone else sooner than later. He almost hurt himself last time he did it. And this time it looked like he almost seriously injured Damon Kemp's knee. Luckily he was okay. Strong smacked Julius on the ring apron and then hit a distracted Brutus with two lifted knees. Julius eventually got the hot tag, hitting all of his signatures with the basement lariat on Kemp to win in, I think it was like 11 minutes. Julius then stared at Strong in kind of defiance after the bell, and the Creeds lifted Kemp to his feet as Strong stared daggers into the side of Julius's head. It was a really entertaining match. The ongoing story, it's pretty good, and it got advanced through not just what we got pre-match, but they advanced the story through the wrestling, through what happened in the ring, and that's the type of shit I love. Uh, There's really not much more you could want from this. I went 3.25 stars and to be just a very nice, entertaining match. Uh, Wendy Chu fought Tiffany Stratton in another low-card match. Stratton was getting her makeup done when Chu snuck in and threw powder in her face. That led to an extended backstage brawl through a commercial break until they finally got into the ring. They each got some good offense. Stratton literally tore off one of Wendy's nails and then worked on her hand. Chu hit a toss belly-to-belly and a nap-time elbow drop. Stratton got a pop-up powerbomb. Chu then hit a great Uranagi for a near fall. Stratton did a full flip out of a German suplex, hit a shotgun dropkick on Chu in the corner, and finished her with the twisting Vader bomb for the win in 5.30. I loved that finish sequence. I thought it was awesome. The fact that she could execute all of it too was really good. So I went three stars and a B minus for this. It wasn't really much of anything to sink your teeth into, but that finish and the wrestling between both of them was really good, especially for someone in Stratton who is still a neophyte. She's still young to this entire thing, and she's already putting on good matches with someone who's more of a veteran in Wendy Chu. 
Now, this was miles better than the women's tag team match. I would gripe about the time that it was only 5.30, but this really did get like 10 to 12 minutes when you include the extended backstage segment. Stratton is really good. The gimmick is a little grating for me. If they can fix that and find something that suits her better, they really have something with Tiffany Stratton. Apollo Crews cut a promo saying his kids didn't recognize him during his last WWE gimmick, and then they stopped watching altogether because it wasn't authentic. Now they are excited that he's back in NXT. Cruz mentioned all the people he could fight when Giovanni Vinci interrupted. Vinci said Cruz purposely overlooked him, and Cruz said, hey, all right, let's just fight. Vinci accepted for next week, saying the delay would give Cruz a chance to come up with an excuse for his kids. Zion Quinn later put himself over as the prototypical WWE superstar. He said he's the future and Cruz is the past. So Apollo Cruz is fighting a war on two fronts right now. He's got a match coming up with Vinci, but the shit with Quinn is still happening. Neither of the first two promos were good. Zion's was actually pretty solid, but even worse, the booking of Cruz and Vinci does not make any sense. Cruz is a really big name who just returned to a huge reaction. And then they did taped shows, so they didn't have him on TV for weeks. Vinci is getting a really strong push to start his rebrand. And now they're fighting each other where one of them has to lose. I guess Zion Quinn could interfere, force a disqualification, and that would theoretically work, but that's so cheap. We want people to win matches. Why not have Cruz beat Zion Quinn and then fight Giovanni Vinci and maybe even lose to him? So there's plenty of people in NXT that both of these guys could have fought. I don't like the booking here. We'll see how it transpires next week. Maybe I'll feel a little bit different. Tony D'Angelo told the rest of Legado del Fantasma that he took care of Santos Escobar after taking care of internal family business. He showed Santos laid up in a hospital bed. Then he said Electra Lopez was recently busy because she was the only one pulling her weight, increasing business at the docks. And by the way, there's no docks in Orlando. I mean, there might be, but there really aren't. Um, And he said, if the rest of Legado does not fall in line, they'll be in a hospital just like Escobar. I don't even have a takeaway. I'm just bored. I thought last week that this kind of ended when they all had the infighting, but I guess it's still to get, they're still together technically. I don't know where it's going. You have to imagine that there's going to be an Escobar D'Angelo rematch at some point down the line. If they do a loser leaves NXT match, that is something that I would be interested in. Bring Legato up to the main roster. They've been ready for over a year to get called up. So if that's the direction, cool. If not, I don't get the point of this and it's kind of just starting to get boring. Class was in session at Chase U. Bodie Hayward fell asleep because Thea Hale never stops watching WWE and keeps him up all night. Some other guys said John Adams thought Independence Day should be July 2nd, and Andre Chase snapped at him in his signature fashion. Hale suggested a field trip to England, and Chase agreed. So I presume they're all going to be showing up on NXT UK soon, which is kind of cool. Sending that contingent over there to get some work in, that's a good idea. Uh, There was also a vignette for someone named Axiom that showed off a bunch of math. It looked like algebra and calculus. It's been a couple years uh, since I've had to do anything beyond simple multiplication, addition, subtraction, and division. Uh, He said he was taught from a young age how important it is to be intelligent, and that benefits him both in and out of the ring. Now, this is a name and gimmick change for the former A-Kid, the Spanish wrestler who was coming over from NXT UK. And I have to tell you, it's a huge improvement. Like, we don't frequently say that about WWE name changes. Axiom, I think it's a pretty badass name. That's just me. Also, this was explained a hundred times better than the stupid statistician gimmick that Kiana James is using. That thing is completely dead in the water. This is more, hey, look, I have this skill set, which makes me smart and talented. 
Hers is like, I'm going to sit and crunch the numbers and figure out the way to beat you. It's, it's just really dumb. So Axiom, so far, thumbs up. It's only a vignette. Can't wait to see him re-debut after previously showing up as A-Kid. It is interesting that they're bringing over a lot of guys who would be considered cruiserweights from NXT UK. Obviously, Axiom and JD McDonough being the most notable recent people who are coming over. And there's not a cruiserweight division anymore. So, and that's not typical WWE prototype that they want on the main roster. So is it to test them out and make decisions? You know, I don't really know exactly what they're doing, but both of those are super talented guys. And I'm excited to see them weekly or semi-weekly on NXT in the United States. Lastly, NXT flashed a QR code on the screen during the show. When visiting the link, it displayed 8, 10, 11 as like a time, which is obviously meant to be a mystery. It seems like a time, eight o'clock hour, 10 minutes, 11 seconds. Now, whether this is for Axiom or it's someone unrelated, it completely remains to be seen. It's tough to even try and read into it. There is really nothing to take from that and try to expand further. Maybe next week when we get hopefully a second version of this, it'll become a little bit more clear. I, you know, I, I don't think it's for Io Shirai or Zoe Stark. Those are the only two people who I think are coming back from injury. So if it's not for them, I'm not really sure who it's for. And that's really it from this week in NXT. As you can tell, I just did not love Great American Bash. I did think that the Mellow Waller match was spectacular and the main event was really solid until the finish. But what they did with the women's tag team titles, which opened the show and it was supposed to be maybe the signature moment of the program, it just completely fell flat. And when you have a faction that's been as dominant as Toxic Attraction has been, you want that moment, again, to quote Andy Bernard, you want that delicious moment at the end. And this wasn't delicious. In fact, you can make an argument that if you're going to cut off Toxic Attraction's head and end their dominance, it should be Mandy Rose maybe to lose first, or all three of them should lose on the same show. But there's no number one contender for Mandy with the exception of Roxy, who has the contract. And the women's tag team title win for the faces was just lackluster and very bland, as I've said before. So just not a banner episode of NXT and very disappointing for a special episode of NXT because usually those deliver. This one I did not feel delivered to expectation. It was a very strong card that just didn't really live up to its billing, what it could have been. So with that, we can move over to AEW. The first hour of Dynamite was very promo heavy, which was a drastic divergence from what we normally get on the show. I did find that to be notable. The bookend title matches on Dynamite were fantastic. It opened with the TNT title match, closed with the AEW Interim World Championship match. But I felt that everything between both of those matches left a shit ton to be desired. And I don't say that flippantly. Like it was in otherwise what I would call bad episode bookended by two really good title matches. That's the best way I can describe this Dynamite. Now we're gonna break down Dynamite and Rampage together as we always do. So you may be saying, if you didn't watch this week, Silver King, how was there an interim title match? Who exactly was the challenger? Well, that is what we are gonna get to first. So on Rampage, they held a Royal Rampage. The idea was two simultaneous 10-man Royal Rumbles in the two blood and guts rings with the final pairing, one from each ring, fighting for the number one contendership. The participants that had like a legitimate chance to win were Hangman, Darby Allen, Swerve, Keith Lee, Brody King, and I guess Orange Cassidy. Max Caster came out with Billy Gunn, but not the Ass Boys. Roosh made his in-ring debut, but got eliminated along with Penta Oscuro. Swerve and Lee were in opposite rings. Konosuke uh, Takeshka had the hottest run of anyone when entering. 
Suddenly, Swerve eliminated Orange. Lee eliminated Powerhouse Hobbs. Starks eliminated Lee. Butcher and Blade eliminated Swerve. King pounced Hangman off the apron. And then Darby basically watched as Butcher and Blade eliminated themselves. That left King and Darby as the final two. King blasted him right away and put Darby in a sleeper hold over the top rope, knocking him out cold and then just dropping him off the apron onto the floor for the win. I loved the finish, the winner, and the match concept. It was very cool and different. However, the execution was horrendous. There were sparse eliminations for like 20 minutes. And then suddenly in like a two minute span, everyone in the ring got eliminated. There wasn't a single notable moment except for the very end. And the end was great again. I loved, I'll repeat myself, the winner, the finish, and the match concept. But to watch like a 25 minute match and enjoy 30 seconds of it, it's really not the ideal situation. Like I said, there wasn't really a single notable moment other than that finish. And I just found it to be boring. But I did love the booking of Mox and Brody King fighting for the title. And that is what we got in the main event of Dynamite, the AEW Interim Championship on the line, Moxley King. Mox cut a fantastic promo, as is tradition, explaining how he's been kicking ass and making people bleed for most of the last two weeks. And he knows everything he needs to know about Brody King going into the match. Malachi Black then cut a promo on behalf of King later, and that he didn't really say much typical Malachi Black fashion. King missed a cannonball in the corner. Mox came back with a half-dragon suplex and stomped on his clavicle. King came back with a lariat and a pile driver for a near fall. Then he put Mox to sleep in the corner and hit the cannonball. Mox was unable to get a roll-up, but was able to hit Paradigm Shift. He didn't cover, though. Instead, he delivered the hammer elbows and tried the bulldog choke, but King fell on his back to break it. Mox put the choke back in, and at this moment, this exact moment, my DVR cut off. By the time I got back to TBS, TBS on my regular TV... He had won the title, so my assumption is that Mox choked him out and won. It was a really good hard-hitting match, a worthy main event. King was elevated from winning the Battle Royal and fighting Mox, which was great, and we got a very fun main event match that was hard-hitting. I went 3.5 stars B overall, just entertained and well-placed. To open the show, we had the TNT Championship match I mentioned, Scorpio Sky against Wardlow in a street fight. Wardlow took a low blow with little damage and threw Sky around the ring. Like six American top team folks were ringside. Wardlow hit a massive and really impressive swanton bomb to a huge pop. It was the moment of the match. He set up for a powerbomb when ATT attacked and he just dispatched them one by one. Sky then blindsided him with a TNT title for a 2.8 false finish. Wardlow then hit a one-arm spinebuster and three powerbombs before putting his foot on Sky's chest to win the title in about eight minutes and 30 seconds. Then he got a big celebration after the bell. This was exactly what it needed to be. The street fight stipulation was great because it created at least some sense of doubt that the title change would happen here, but it needed to happen here. And AEW followed through with it. Wardlow is over as hell despite some pretty awful booking or really no booking uh, the last few weeks since Double or Nothing. The TNT title has also been treated like absolute dog shit for much of the last year. So now that Wardlow has it, we can expect a sustained title run with no obvious end in sight. He's going to be beating a lot of people. And that's a big positive also. This was really well done. I would say top to bottom, start to finish. This was the best thing on Dynamite Wednesday. It just worked on every level that it needed to work. 
And even creating the false finish with the title shot to the head made you think for a moment, oh, that's how they get out of Wardlow winning the title. Except he kicked out, of course, and ended up winning. All exceptionally good. On Dynamite, we had Christian Cage and Luchasaurus in the ring. Matt Hardy interrupted before they said anything to call him an asshole. Christian said Matt makes it sound as if his brother is the sober one and called him a clout chaser. Christian said Matt uses his entire family and even turns a blind eye to Jeff's issues just to get himself over. He called Jeff a screw-up and a loser, but said Matt was even more embarrassing. Luchasaurus then headbutted Matt, threw him into the steel steps, booted him into the ring post, and chokeslammed him through a table filled with confetti for some reason. This was awful in every way. Uh, It was the cheapest type of forced outrage heat, and it was completely unnecessary at that. Is the goal just for Christian to try to one-up himself and say outrageous, really shitty stuff week after week? Like, how is that a thing? And who gives a shit about Luchasaurus or Christian versus Matt Hardy, like doing a feud in 2022? All of this is not to mention the complete double standard and hypocrisy of the IWC that praised this on Wednesday night that I saw after Jeff just committed an awful DUI, three times the legal limit, put people's lives in danger, and is now getting help actively, whether it's in rehab or he's getting help out of rehab, despite these same people shitting on WWE for similar promos and stuff two years ago when Jeff was actually sober and apparently doing the best he had in a while and okay with doing all these things. Which, what's interesting about all of this is I love the Luchasaurus repackage, the heel turn, everything. The guy looks like a million bucks, but there's basically no solid explanation for either of their turns. Christians was nonsensical talking about getting thrown out of a battle royal and losing some money. The guy's rich. He's been wrestling for like 20 years. Why does he need money? Luchasaurus, we have no reason whatsoever. And the explanation of it is we're not going to give you a reason. We're not going to give you an explanation. I also don't even really give a shit about ultra babyface Jungle Boy getting revenge on these guys. I don't care about him at all. So this is not working on any level. And I thought what we got Wednesday night, candidly, was trash. Zero point zero. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. On Dynamite, Claudio Castanoli and Jake Hager were interviewed together backstage by Tony Schiavone. Hager said Claudio has never been a champion like him, calling out WWE by name in the promo. Claudio said he's undefeated in AEW with two wins over Hager, and he'll improve to 3-0 next week. The WWE line felt so incredibly forced, but other than that, this was kind of well done, and it was a different vantage point doing this interview in the backstage area instead of being in front of the interview set. So I just liked the way it was set up. Claudio's part was good. It was fine. The WWE mentioned was totally unnecessary. Again, it was trying to get a cheap pop. On Dynamite, Eddie Kingston came out for an interview. He gave a shout out to Wardlow for winning the title and his blood and guts team, including Claudio, reluctantly, he said that. He said he didn't follow through making Chris Jericho bleed and taste his own blood. Jericho then immediately interrupted with a camera in the parking lot where Ty Conti waited for, like, was literally waiting for Ruby Soho to get her hands into position on the doorframe of a car so she could slam the door onto them. The whole thing was nonsensical. First, that Jericho and his crew would be all set up and ready with the camera, Ruby primed to get her hand squashed in a car door, all for an attack at that exact moment. But second, that Kingston would give a flying shit about Ruby Soho. Like, yeah, she ran down during Blood and Guts to stop Conti in a quick moment, 
but it's not like the friendship has been established between them. It was such, such a strange thing to have Kingston out there cutting another awesome, passionate, somewhat funny promo only to have it end this ridiculously. I presume the Jericho Kingston blow off match is going to happen at all out. So it's another rematch, by the way, that AEW supposedly doesn't do. They end their storylines and they move on, except for when they don't. And this thing has now been going on for multiple months. I think a Kingston Jericho rematch will be entertaining and good. And the booking towards it has been fine. But there's been so many opportunities for this to end and it just isn't that now they're just creating random shit, which is what we got Wednesday night. And it was totally unnecessary. Why not have Kingston in the ring by himself? He's talking shit. I didn't make you bleed. And you guys know I'm not a huge fan of the blood, but have the entire JAS attack him and Jericho make him bleed and say, hey, Kingston, you can't make me bleed, but I can make you bleed. At least there's something that connects to the promo instead of Ruby Soho, some random person getting attacked in the parking lot. It just didn't work. On Dynamite, Miro cut another taped promo, this time on Black for spraying the mist in his face during the All-Atlantic title match. He said he's coming for the entire House of Black as a consequence, so I guess that makes him a babyface now. That's good to know. Uh, we had, On Rampage, we had a tag team title match for the AEW Championships, the Young Bucks against Hiroki Goto and Yoshihashi. Nick hit a great Escalera corkscrew-style move outside. Goto then caught him with two Yushigoroshis for a near fall. Tagging was completely non-existent. Yoshihashi ate a BTE trigger. Nick then did a double springboard splash onto Goto in the second ring before a double springboard melter driver in the first ring for the win. The finish was simultaneously completely unnecessary, but also completely awesome to see Nick execute two of those double springboard moves. The match overall besides that was just okay. On Dynamite, we had Swerve in my glory against Butcher and Blade. Backstage, Keith Lee refused to sign a lawsuit against Swerve that was written out by Mark Sterling saying Swerve is impossible to trust. He basically said, we're partners and we're winning, so I'm not gonna sign it. Blade pulled Swerve into the path of Lee's pounce and the heels hit a few moves for a false finish that was supposed to be a broken fall, but Lee was way too slow and late getting to it. The finish was then a spirit bomb with Swerve flying for a double stomp that he completely missed. He didn't get a single foot on the guy's chest. There was no tagging for the latter 50% of the match, and it was sloppy in multiple different parts. Team Taz came out immediately after the bell, saying the faces were disrespecting them. Now, how the how Swerve and Keith Lee disrespected them by wrestling in a match and winning it, I have no earthly idea. Ricky Starks then went absolutely nuts on the mic for no discernible reason. When the Young Bucks interrupted, they mentioned that the match between the other four was a 4.5 star match, not as good as them. Plus, Jurassic Express won only to lose the titles to the Bucks. They proposed a triple threat title match for next week. Fans cut off Matt Jackson by chanting for FTR. I don't want to hear anymore that AEW doesn't do rematches and repetitive booking. These two teams have been feuding for months to the point that their promos don't even make sense anymore. And now we're getting another triple threat title match in like a month with two of the three teams exactly the same. You have to assume Bucks versus FTR with most or all of the titles on the line is going to be the all out match. So it really would not make any sense to change the straps here. It's probably a situation where they can further split Swerve and Keith Lee. But again, to what end? So they feud and then that's over. It's just, I don't really get it. But this is also like the hundredth time that AEW has skipped over a certified clear number one contender to give title matches to other people. And I know that happens all the time in boxing and MMA, but the whole point of AEW is that wins and losses matter and the ranking system matters, except they really don't. 
By the way, on top of that, like putting that aside, is Team Taz still together? Like I keep calling them that, but Taz is never with them anymore. Hook never shows up anywhere with Starks and Powerhouse Hobbs. They've been completely separated for what feels like months. Taz seems to speak about them on commentary, but they're never together. They don't cut promos together. They don't have storylines or feuds together. I just don't really know what they're doing. Is it over? And if it's over, why not tell us it's over? Why not run a breakup storyline where Taz maybe takes hook and says, he needs to work on his own. Best of luck to you guys. We'll connect at another time. It just ended kind of, or it's still ongoing, but they're not working together, which makes it the only faction in AEW that exists, except no one talks about it or works together. So again, just very confused at that whole thing. We did get a follow-up from the Royal Rampage, which is Penta Oscuro against Roosh in a singles match. They slapped the shit out of each other at the bell. Roosh went after the mask. Penta came back with two sling blades and a tope con hero outside. Alex and Jose fought at ringside again. Roosh had a missile dropkick and flying senton for a near fall. Penta came back with a rolling cutter and fear factor, but Andrade El Idolo put Roosh's foot on the rope. Roosh then ripped off Penta's mask. It's like the third time they've done that just within this mini feud for the win. Penta, by the way, is now five and seven in singles matches on AEW television in three years. It's astounding, not only that he has a losing record, but he's only fought 12 singles matches in three years, despite the fact that he's in a tag team. Typical Lucha Brothers booking, though, having Penta lose. Of course, though, you have to say, Roosh needed to win his initial singles match in AEW. It would not have made any sense for him to lose. Clearly, this is setting up uh, La Fashion and Gobernables versus Lucha Brothers tag team match, which is going to be a banger, I have to assume, when they're going to do it, why they're going to do it, how they're going to get there to actually have that match remains to be seen, but I'm not going to ever turn down bad wrestling. Uh, or, sorry, I'm not going to ever turn down great wrestling, which this will be great wrestling. I will say that the storyline to this point, it's left a lot to be desired. On Rampage, we had Tony Storm against Nyla Rose. Marina Shafir was out there with Nyla. Storm hit a hip attack and then a double DDT outside. Nyla ripped off uh, a turnbuckle pad. Storm booted Shafir off the apron during a tornado DDT and hit an additional pendulum DDT for the win over Nyla. Shafir attacked immediately after the bell. Thunder Rosa made the save once again, and they shook hands. It was a fine match for Storm to get a win back. The post-match, it's just repetitive with the attacks. So then on Dynamite, we had Thunderstorm, Rosa, and uh, Tony against Nyla and Shafir in a women's tag team match. This was in the normal spot on the show. The crowd mostly sat on its hands until there was a very light chant late for Rosa, Storm got the hot tag with her German suplexes and a hip attack on Shafir. I think they finished with a Meltzer driver for the win in nine minutes. The faces then celebrated together and nothing else happened. The match was just okay. One thing I can definitely give AEW credit for when it comes to the women's division is it has naturally created tag teams and partnerships. And this is something that we talked about all the time with WWE, where they have the women's tag team division, or they're supposed to, on the main roster they never had women's tag teams. It's not that you need to establish individual teams that only wrestle as teams. But what you need to do is take all of the women on your roster. I'm speaking to WWE here. You need to take all of the women on your roster and create on-screen friendships and partnerships. For faces, it can be friendships. For heels, it can be, you know, just coexisting partnerships where when a situation arises, they have each other's back. And WWE just refuses to do it But AEW has naturally done it. Not all of them are permanent, obviously, because there's not a women's tag team title and there's not a division, but there's people who are clearly fighting together at least semi-frequently. And I've been noticing this develop 
over the last month or so. And it makes me wonder whether AEW is planning to bring in Sasha Banks and Naomi, assuming that they're released, assuming they depart from WWE and don't get re-signed. But if AEW is planning on bringing both of them in together and immediately announcing a women's tag team division with championships. I know that may be like a little conspiracy theory-esque, but the Sasha situation, despite being very much up in the air, I could see AEW, given their entire history, creating a division and a new set of titles just despite WWE, which has done nothing with their supposed tournament since they forced them to vacate the titles. It's just hard to ignore for me how many women's partnerships exist. Thunderstorm, Rosen Shafir, Anna Jay, and uh, uh, the name is slipping me right now, but the woman that she always wrestles with, Athena and Statlander, Mercedes Martinez and Serena Deeb. The baddies can easily be a team. I mean, what did I just name off? One, two, three, four, that's six that I just named. And I didn't even like go into like, are people teaming on dark? Do other women have friendships? Like I didn't even get into all that stuff. Ruby Soho obviously can team with someone. Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter could be a tag team. Now we're at eight. And that's without even trying. AEW has more potential women's tag teams without a division than WWE has ever had, despite a division being around for multiple years. That to me is notable. And look, the women's booking in AEW, it sucks. They get no TV time. The storylines are usually bad. The booking is repetitive. There's a ton of post-match attacks. We criticize the women's booking all the time, and I'm about to criticize it again in a moment. But the development of these tag teams, if they do start a division, you have to give them credit for actually seemingly buying into it or at least developing enough interesting partnership storylines where anytime they want to have a women's tag team match, they can do it without throwing something together. So I want to give them credit where it's due there. Now let me crap on the division. Uh, On Dynamite, Jade Cargill was angry about Stokely Hathaway having Layla Gray help last week. He said he paid her $1,100 to go from wanting to beat her ass to saving her ass. Jade said, if she doesn't deliver, that's your ass, Stokely. We got cut the shit in this, but we did not get that bitch show. Just in case you guys were wondering, this is basically the same thing every week. Jade is completely one note. She is clearly talented and she clearly has a future. But man, what is the point of giving her like managers or agents or whatever when she's the one talking anyway? And all they really did was take Mark Sterling and kick him out and put Stokely in his place. I love Stokely Hathaway. He has added nothing whatsoever to the baddies or Jade Cargill or the entire gimmick. He is funnier than Mark Sterling on the mic, but we never hear him talk. He never gets to cut an extended promo. When he's on commentary, he's one of four voices. So what was the purpose of bringing him in and putting him with Jade? I don't get it. I'm I'm done with Jade in terms of being the TBS champion. She has no challenge. I mean, she has Athena and Chris Statlander as challengers, except all we ever get is post-match brawls. There's no interaction. There's no scheduled title match with either of them. And there's no clarity in terms of like, which of them is actually going to be the one to take the title off her if either of them are going to be the one to take the title off of her. So it's just, it's really bad. And they got to do something about it. On Dynamite, the Acclaimed and the Ass Boys fought Ruffin It and Fuego Del Sol. Why this match was on the show, I have no idea. Tony Khan apparently tweeted that the TNT title match fell well short of its book time, so he added a match to the show. But meanwhile, the main event 
went over and they had to go into the overrun. So why not just give Moxley and Brody King say, hey guys, you have two extra minutes. Like It made no sense to do this. Anyway, they had this match. The guns prevented Max Caster from doing his pre-match rap. Caster hit the mic drop, but only after Colton Dunn blind tagged himself in. The referee wouldn't count the fall until Colton jumped on top of the guy and got the one, two, three. Billy Gunn was frustrated at ringside. The acclaimed was pissed after the bell. The guns then attacked the claimed until Bully, Billy pulled them off, only to turn and clothesline Caster. Anthony Bowens wanted to be scissored, but Billy instead hit him with the Famouser. This was like fine for a low card storyline. The only strange part is the acclaimed and ass boys together were super over and I can't help but feel like it ended way too soon to create a low card tag team feud that I don't care about and I don't think most people do care about it other than I'm sure the acclaimed will win. So good for them. On Dynamite, Dark Order, well, I guess what's left of Dark Order, came out midway through the show with negative one in Brody Lee's hometown of Rochester to a really big pop. Evil Uno thanked everyone for supporting them and said the six of them are here to stay and Dark Order is forever. He also said they're about to begin a new chapter. And in that moment, I got really excited. I thought something was going to happen, like some big development. Someone was going to come out as a new leader or whatever the case, but nothing happened. Negative One was about to speak when QT Marshall interrupted to shit talk the kid and threatened to destroy all of his toys. Hangman Adam Page then stormed down and QT got taken out seven on one before Negative One grabbed the mic and said, I'm not going to pin you now, even though I could. I'll do it when I'm 18. So look, I'm not going to shit on this. It was a nice moment, probably best served or better served for a pre-show dark situation where you can then air like a one minute clip of it on Dynamite instead of doing a five minute segment. But it was Brody Lee's hometown. It was cool that they did it. You know, I'm not going to crap on it. On Rampage, Jonathan Gresham cut a promo about he and Lee Moriarty agreeing to fight two of Tully Blanchard's guys. He went off about being disrespected for not getting included in the best technical wrestler conversation and for just being overlooked in general. He's the ROH world champion, by the way. And this was one of the best taped promos in AEW history. AEW wrestler, Ring of Honor wrestler, I don't care who it was. Like Moxley and Kingston are their own bag, obviously. They are on a different tier than everyone else. But if you took everyone else, this was probably one of the 10 best taped taped promos in AEW history. Gresham absolutely crushed it. He actively made me interested in him as a wrestler in the match next week and in following him now going forward. All of that was very cool. There were also a bunch of segments on Dynamite promoting the ROH Death Before Dishonor pay-per-view, which is happening on July 23rd. I'm not sure about you all, but this kind of sprung up on me. All the matches actually seem to make some good sense in the limited storylines that we've gotten, and the card looks solid so far. FTR's promotion, though, was easily the most notable because they challenged the Briscoes to a rematch of what many have called the match of the year so far in 2022 on this show. I've yet to see that that match, but I definitely need to, and I will before the Death Before Dishonor pay-per-view on the 23rd. On Rampage, Hook was asked what's next. He didn't answer and pulled Alex Marvez's tie. I legitimately couldn't understand what he said. He said something, but I doubt it was much of anything. And that was really all the segments that we got across Dynamite and Rampage. The last thing I'm going to talk about with AEW, though, is Fighter Fest starts next week with Night 1 on Dynamite. I'm not totally sure if Night 2 is Rampage or the next week's Dynamite, but let's hope it's Rampage and, and they don't try to stretch it out over two weeks. I may have said this before, I don't really remember, but if AEW keeps holding special events every week, they're going to continue to feel less and less special. We went from Road Rager to Blood and Guts to One Week Off to Fighter Fest. 
That's with Double or Nothing and Forbidden Door thrown in there as well. So you're talking five special events. Royal Rampage, you could maybe throw in as a sixth if you wanna you know, try to do that. But five special events in like a six week or seven week window. It's like the old adage about quarterbacks. If you have two, you don't even have one. If every event is special, none of them are special. Blood and Guts obviously made total sense. It's a signature match. It's, it is special. It is different. Road Rager and Fighter Fest were completely nonsensical and unnecessary. If you want to do those shows, then do one special show a month and have it be Road Rager, Fighter Fest, all these other stupid, you know, Bash at the Beach or whatever the hell they call that. You know, you do them once a month and space them out. Instead, doing like four of them or three of them in a five-week window it blood and guts felt special. The other ones didn't. It's just a label and it doesn't really do anything. So look, just put on good television. Don't worry about the gimmicks and the branding and all that bullshit. And we're going to watch your product anyway, because we like your product. I don't need it to be fighter fest for me to tune in next week and see two different title matches on the show. I'm going to tune in anyway, because there's two title matches on the show. And that's all I need to say about that. It's also all I need to say for this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, as we just broke down everything that happened this week in the worlds of NXT and AEW. Please do not forget that this show, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, is So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a review. Let everyone know how much you love the show and why they should subscribe. Please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And do not forget, we will be back same bat time, same bat channel next week for our next NXT AEW show in between now and then. Our next episode is coming on Tuesday. It'll be our regular WWE episode where we break down everything that happens this week on SmackDown and Thank you all for listening. I will see you on Tuesday. But at this point, the Silver King is going to leave you with three final words. Bye for now.